Welcome to Paranormal Almanac 2023! With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and welcome to another edition of Paranormal Almanac. On this edition, let's talk Treasure 2, Judgment Day. But first, as always, we've got shout-outs. That's right, we have shout-outs going out to the patrons. Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac. Fun fact, if you weren't a patron last week... Um, and you join now, or if you were, actually, I don't know what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that uh, the patrons got an extra episode is what I'm trying to say. But if you like treasure episodes, last week, right after the last, the part one of this one, the patrons got their own exclusive part two. But we have shout outs going out to patrons like, and Stephen Share, Jane Ann, Jennifer, Heather, Zuzus, what's that? Paula, Rick, Nico Share the Mouse, Paul, Mark, Tortuga, Hannah Boo, Mike from Jersey, Jay Bizzle, Andy, Tracy, Virginia, Tony, Jason, Vicky, Crow, Clay, Buzz, Lobito Works, Glacier Maine, Isabel, Jen, Jen, Stacy, Amber, Sandy, Kelly Joe, Menace the Beast, Kick-Ass Magic, Robot Webcomic, uh, Sandy, boy, I don't know why I get caught up on Sandy every time. Sorry, Sandy, you're the best. I love you. Uh, Paige, Kyle, Sean, Andrew, Scott A, Andrea, Melody, Vicky, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Alicia, Becca, Jake, and the Beasties, Elizabeth. Void Tech, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Ricardo, Ian, Alexandra, George, Seth, Zozo the Demon, Hayden, Cindy, Ashley, Carrie, Robin, Will, Lorna Mangano, Russell, April, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, Stacy, Jerry, Lindsay, Megan, Jeff, T, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, V. Lawrence, Strawn, hey, howdy, hi, Veronica, Autumn, J. Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jaden, and Ashy, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Dan, Laura Pitts, and Gamer Fan with Special shout-outs, as always, to Joe Teague and to Stitch. And, not that she ever listens, but my mom. It was her birthday this week, so what the heck? Why not? All righty. Sorry, I had to drink. Had to, I, got a, I, had, I got a vitamin water for, you know, for just this episode. A triple X vitamin water. I don't know what makes it triple X. and I really don't know what makes it vitamin water. It just tastes like a sugary drink, but whatever. So I'm going to be enjoying that throughout the, the, the episode, but I'm going to try and make it not so obvious because I don't like listening to people drink on podcasts, so I apologize. But first, let's get right on into paranormal news. Have you ever seen Bigfoot riding on the back of Nessie while being sucked up into the sky by a UFO, all to the soundtrack of a choir of ghost cats being led by a black-eyed child? Is this story true? Well, there's only one place you're going to find out. Get all my news from Paranormal News Listen carefully for the clues The stories are strange and bizarre It makes you wonder just who we are This is Paranormal News Paranormal News There's something in the shadows Take it away Alrighty, Buzz, I will. Yeah. 
Damn, that's a fun one. I really, I really do. I, I enjoy that one. Thank you again, Buzz. All righty, the first story up in paranormal news. This is a story that is in, there was like 14 different websites that I could have uh, pulled from. It's not exactly paranormal, but damn, it's cool. A Londoner solves 20,000-year-old Ice Age drawing mysteries. You got to really have to look into this if this is something that interests you. But you know those cave paintings of like animals and weird shit that they find everywhere? Well, this one dude was at home and he was like, I think I'm going to decode them. And he did, apparently. Well, it seems like he did. It's a great explanation. Basically, he spent numerous hours on the Internet and in the British Library consulting pictures of cave paintings and amassed as much data as possible and began looking for repeating patterns. This dude should be solving the Beale cipher, is what I'm saying. But uh, he examined a Y sign on some of the paintings, which he felt might be a symbol for giving birth because it showed one line growing out of another. Oh, all right, cool. With his research advancing, he brought in friends and senior academics. They encouraged him to continue with his investigations. <clears throat> but even though he was like a person off the street, they were like, dude, this guy might be onto something. And he figured out that there were like animal reproductive cycles. There were like, you know, hey, you should we should come back to this location because they had a bunch of offspring. So next year they're going to be big enough. We can kill them and eat them. And, you know, crazy cool stuff is what I'm saying. And, uh... Like I said, if this is something that interests you, definitely read about it on one of the billion websites that that uh, had the news story because I thought it was really cool that this guy was just like sitting at home was like, you know what I'm going to do today, honey? I'm going to solve cave paintings. I'm going to decipher them. And I guarantee you, you know, his significant other was like, the, what the, what are you doing? Oh, all right. You know, knock yourself out. Doesn't hurt anybody. Why not? That's cool. Alrighty, up next is another one that had just a crap ton of websites, and I don't know if I accidentally, you know, if I actually picked the best website um, news article, but they were all ultimately the same. So I figured, you know, what's the harm? It's it's ultimately a very bizarre story. A suspected UFO was shot down over Russia's Rostov Oblast. While the UFO's identity is unclear, some Russian lawmakers are claiming it was a Ukrainian drone. Though others have even wilder theories. Chances are it was a Ukrainian drone. But basically, they shot down something that they don't know what it is in the Rostov Oblast near the Ukrainian border on Tuesday. They, uh, a bunch of people are going, yeah, it's a UFO, and they've done it before. Uh, let's see. Uh, it was shaped like a ball, so that's bizarre. Sorry, I had a phone call. Uh, they said that uh, you know it was a round Oh, a circle, or what was that called? A, a ball-shaped UFO. So that is kind of weird that was a ball-shaped UFO. There's a lot of people saying this isn't the first time that it has happened in that area, that they actually shot down something else in this area years ago. Um, and then that they said, they also said, which is very, you know, take with grain of salt, back in 2007, some fishermen along the Sea of Azov managed to catch a strange, seemingly unidentified 100-kilogram life form after a strong storm. They had filmed this strange, squeaking creature with a cell phone camera and assumed it was an alien of some sort. They decided to eat the supposed alien, with one of them saying it was the best food he'd ever had. So, yeah. Grain grain of salt in the paranormal news segment, but uh, crazy Russians being crazy. Uh, My guess is that it was some kind of drone or something because of the horrific things that they're doing in the Ukraine, but... uh, I'm not there, so I don't know. So UFO it is. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news, UFO sightings in Maine are way up despite official count, says expert. 
the while the UFO re, uh, reports are down significantly in Maine, one expert believes there may be uh, more sightings than ever before. The Mutual UFO Network and National UFO Reporting Center have documented unidentified flying objects for decades. In 2022, the organizations reported a combined 59 UFO sightings in Maine, down from 73 in 2021, and dramatically down from the record of 98 sightings in 2020. But UFO, UFO author and researcher Normer, Normar Slevik, Slevik, I don't know, I'm sorry, Normar, says the official sightings don't tell the whole story. There's been a lot of sightings that are happening in Maine that are just going unreported through official means. But sightings, if you look on social media, you'll find are way up. For quite some time, the acronym UFO, uh, we all know what UFO means and all that fun stuff, but basically saying, yeah, maybe on the official reports, they're not being, you know, they're not being officially recorded, but you go on social media, you're going to find report after report after report of UFOs in Maine, which, you know what? I bet he's right. More people are apt to go on to you know, social media, whatever kind, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and be like, do you guys just see a UFO? Then they are to make an official report. So I have a feeling he's quite right. All righty, up next in Paranormal News, quaint UK village is UFO hotspot with multiple sightings and NASA interest. That's right. The village of Bonsall again. Boy, they like to talk about it. This one's brand new, though. It's from January 4th. The village of Bonsall boasts cottage pubs and a tea room surrounded by gorgeous scenery, as well as UFO sightings galore and reports of repeated extraterrestrial goings-on. The, let's see, I'm going to get to the big good stuff. They call it the, <laughs> it's the Area 51 of Derbyshire. Okay. As you guys know, anytime that there's some kind of UFO, it's like, oh, it's the UFO of Michigan. It's the UFO of, uh, you know, Scotland. Yeah, you know, okay. We don't need the Area 51 of such or the Roswell of such. We understand what you mean by that there's UFO activity. But they said there have been so many sightings that NASA scientists have reportedly expressed an interest in the area and contacted one woman about video footage she captured of an alien craft in her back garden. Let's see. We all know where it's at. We don't care about their tiny pubs and cute tea rooms, although I'd like to go there. It looks very, very nice. But... Um, Stephen said that NASA officials asked to examine the tape as they believed it showed a similar type craft once spotted by the space agency's cameras. Um, which I kind of, I think I talked about last week or the week before, but this one goes on to say that a former CIA agent has shared a shocking deathbed confession saying there is something going on in that area and that Area 51 and aliens are real. All right, cool. How about we stop waiting till deathbed confessions? Why don't we just... Start talking about it now. If you guys know something, if you've worked at Area 51, if you've worked anywhere and you've seen aliens or you know that they're, you know, we're reverse engineering UFOs, how about you stop waiting until deathbeds and just start talking about it now? All righty. As you know, being the world's first para-influencer, I often talk about Nessie, who's not a monster. But footage is people wondering if Loch Ness Monster, not a monster, has left Scotland. What? I hope not. A recent alleged sighting of the Nessie has people wondering whether the legendary creature has decided to take a holiday. Judge the video for yourself. That's right. Nessie has been sod has been sodded. Nessie has been spotted in North Carolina. North Carolina itself. So I'm gonna watch the video now. I've been waiting to watch this video. So let's see what happens. Nothing happens, apparently. Oh, that's a commercial. No, thank you. All right, so we got 12 seconds. They said that Nessie may be potentially spotted far away from her home. Instead, it seems to be uh, swum over to United States. Swum? Is that the correct? I don't think that's the correct word. Over United States for a change of scenery. Let's go now to the ad or to the um, to the story. Skip the ad.
Well, play already. Come on. Okay. Whoa, what the hell was that? Look at that. I mean, it's something big. But I don't know, do they have manatees or whales or some weird form of dolphin over there in North Carolina? I don't know what they have in North Carolina. I think they got Myrtle Beach. It's about, no, I think it's South Carolina. I don't know what they have in North Carolina is what I'm saying. So it's a footage of this guy in a boat that, as you heard, um, hold on, I'm going to rewind because that was weird. The beginning was the best one. Oh, it's a whale. You can even see. All right. See, see, that's why you have to watch it twice. The very, very, very beginning of the video, and I'm talking within the first second, you can see the blowhole spout, you know, uh, air and water. And you know, oh, well, you know what blowholes do. Um, all right. So it's some kind of whale. So sorry. It is not an Essie. Uh, let's see. No, it was not a monster in the port this morning. Video was taken by Captain Griffey, one of shop charters captains heading out. Uh, let's see. Social media people say it's strange. That's odd. Odd looking head for sure. Someone says it's a large gator. No. In the first second, you can see a blowhole. Come on. Another one. So there we go. Here we go. Person says it's got to be a baby whale. Swimming pattern is weird because it's listing onto its left side. Um, gator does not move like that, nor does a whale. It's a large breed of seal, probably a sea lion. No, there's a blowhole at the beginning, people. Um, all right. You know what? I'm going to say it's some form of baby whale. I hope it's okay. I hope it's not wounded or hurt in any way, shape, or form. And let's move on to the last story in paranormal news. All right. The final paranormal news story before we get into this episode is paranormal TV to look forward to in 2023. Kindred Spirits is back, uh, Friday, January 20th. Expedition Entity, I don't think I've watched this one, is back. Um, it's a Paraflix paranormal show on YouTube. Season 3 premiere on January 13th on Paraflix Paranormal Plus, an on-demand video streaming platform that aims to be the Netflix of the paranormal world. That's cool. I do like Paraflix. They actually bumped, or uh, not bumped into me, but they... they contacted me a long time ago about like, you know, putting my podcast on there, but it was literally like, you know, Hey, put it, put it on Paraflix. And if you do, we're going to take, you know, the majority of your money and, and you get like a tiny percentage. And I was like, well, wait, what am I getting out of this? So I didn't do it. I haven't really looked into it, but I need to look into Paraflix more because I know more and more people are heading on over to Paraflix and I don't want to be the last one. Next up is help. My house is haunted. Let's see. Doesn't say, oh, January 6th in the UK. That's cool. Michigan Hell House. That's cool. Um, premieres January 29th on the Travel Channel and Discovery Plus in the United States. That one's cool. I'm looking forward to that one. Devil's Academy. That one comes out February 5th on the Travel Channel and Discovery Plus. Celebrity Help My House is Haunted. Uh, comes out on December or February 20. Yeah, February 2023 on Discovery Plus. Haunted Hunts. Uh, Amazon Prime in 2023. Stranger Things. Well, that's not really paranormal, so I'm not going to include that one. All right, that's about it for this one. All right, let's get to... Well, actually, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Paranormal Almanac. That's right. We are back. I said I was going to give you a sequel, and guess what? I am. Right now. That's right. But, again, like I said earlier... 
If you're a patron, you already got your own different sequel right after the last episode. So anybody listening, if you really like treasures, and there were some cool ones that were brought up on the patron episode, if I, you know, toot my own horn kind of thing, but there's some cool ones. If you like treasure, the patrons know about some other cool treasures. And for as little as a dollar a month, not only do you support this show, help make this show a better thing and help me, you know, make this show a better show. Um, you can also listen to extra episodes, patron exclusive episodes. But for this one, for the rest of y'all, first up on this sequel that, again, I hope you've been waiting for it. You know, if you're like, you know, Kurt, enough with the treasure. This is not called Treasure Almanac. It's called Paranormal Almanac. Well, don't worry because next week's it's back to the paranormal. But I, I really like these treasure ones. And I've gotten a lot of people say that they liked them too. So, you know, Enough people seem to enjoy them. And you know what? It's just fun. It's like right now, just before I did this episode, actually, I went and grabbed my Mega Millions tickets because, you know, the Mega Millions, if, well, you might not know, you might not be in America. Right now in America, the Mega Millions is up to 1.2 billion with a B dollars. So I spend five bucks or six bucks. I think I spent six bucks. You spend six bucks, you get a couple of tickets. And it gives you hope for a week and it lets you to like, you know, go on to Zillow and be like, boy, if I won a billion dollars, I'd buy that. And I'd give my friends millions of dollars. You know, you get to have fun thinking about what you'd want to do with, you know, being a billionaire. And also, I might add, not once did I go, hmm, well, if I was a billionaire, I wouldn't help out people. I wouldn't help out fellow people. You know, like there's some charities that I want to do. There's some people that I want to help out. There's some dog charities that I want to help out and, and rescue centers and stuff like that. So I don't get why people that are billionaires just don't want to help people anymore. Where did that come from? Like I, oh, billionaires suck is what I'm saying. All right. <clears throat> but for the first one on this episode, if you live in Idaho or you want to live in Idaho, or you have your own private Idaho. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I don't know much about Idaho other than potatoes, sadly. It, you know, I'm sure it's a wonderful place. It looks beautiful. But if you go to Idaho, if you live in Idaho, if you live near Idaho, there's some gold in them, our hills. And let me tell you, it was hard to pick which one I wanted to talk about in detail on this episode. Idaho just seems to be packed with gold, treasure, and potatoes. So the first one, the most infamous treasure for Idaho that I could find anyway, is known as the East Idaho Stagecoach Robbery Treasure, which is a very wordy, but I will say accurate title. There, It's in East Idaho. There was a stagecoach. It was robbed and there's a treasure. So yeah, you checked all the boxes. Not exactly the most, you know, flourishy kind of title, but you know, there you go. So let's go way, way back to July 26th, 1865. That's right. That's when the Overland stage line, which was carrying gold in its cargo. Now the gold valued about $86,000 at the time of the theft would now be worth maybe more than $4 million. It kind of varies depending on um, where you look. And also it varies depending on what site you go to to find out how much gold was actually there? Some sites say there was actually 800 pounds of gold on board. Stamped gold bars, like st like crazy cool stuff. So, look, if you find it, it's a treasure. You're going you're gonna to enjoy it is what I'm saying. So, the stagecoach was held up by the Pickett Corral Gang. 
Is it corral or coral? Hold on. I got to, I'm looking it up. I th think it's coral. It is. It's picket coral gang. It's not even the picket corral gang, which you'd think it would be for, you know, like old Westy kind of stuff. But all right, the picket coral gang. Uh, let's see. Here's what happened, basically. So the the stagecoach reached the stream um, near a place where the, the, you know, the outlaws were all like ready and willing to go. They think they had an, an, an accomplice. I'll talk about him in a minute. But um, they knew the route, basically, that the stagecoaches all took. And they said, all right, there's one spot where there's a stream. So the outlaws were all hiding in the brush in the stream. So the stagecoach comes around the corner, starts slowing down, travels through the stream of water. Then it went up the bank when it suddenly had to stop because across the road, instead of, you know, the trail that they go through, the, the uh, picket cor coral gang had actually placed a bunch of boulders right there to stop the stagecoach. So he comes up the bank and they're like, oh, shit, what the hell? Was there a landslide? What's happening? Nope. Because immediately the outlaws jump out shouting, I don't know, some form of, you know, this is a stick up. This is a robbery. This is a hold up. You know, you, you can figure it out. Give us your gold. Some robbery kind of crap, robber kind of crap. But um, all right. So one of the passengers on the stagecoach was a dude named Sam Martin. He was a professional gambler because of course he was. Well, he slides open that little kind of cool door on the side of stagecoaches, sticks out a pistol, and just starts shooting at the robbers. Now, it said in a lot of, almost everything, every article I could find, says that, you know, verifies this, that he actually shot off one of the robbers' left index fingers. Which, if that's what he was aiming for, that is badass. So, this robber, minus one finger, named Whitmore, shouted, It's a trap! Which I might say, my, my I should add, had not been trademarked by George Lucas yet. So he starts shooting anything he could, and the rest of the, the robbers just start unloading into the stagecoach. Now they said that they immediately hit the lead horse, sadly, and the stagecoach was now stopped. So they're just you know blah 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 blah, just blowing it away. Now either the driver or the guy that I don't know sits on the top with the gun, the worst seat possible for a stagecoach was this guy named Parks. Now, he was injured, but he managed to scramble away. Uh, he went towards, like, the woods. Now, two other men from inside the stagecoach, one, a guy named Fred Williams, who experts say was, quote, an accomplice to the gang. There you go. There's your accomplice. They think that he was the guy that kind of was told them when and where and what. You know, like, this is the stagecoach. When I get on it, it's going to have 800 pounds of gold or whatever crap. They think this guy, Fred Williams, was the accomplice to the gang, and another passenger named James B. Brown, who is a Virginia City saloon keeper, they both got out and made it to the nearby woods. Now, the rest of the passengers, though, were killed. Sam Martin, that, you know, professional gambler who shot off the finger. Mr. and Mrs. Andy Dittmar, who was a Mormon couple. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jess Harper, an ex-Confederate soldier and a man named L.F. Carpenter, uh, who was headed to San Francisco to catch a steamship to New Orleans, um, they all died. But some sites say that Carpenter actually didn't die, but played dead. So they think they got everyone in the, in the stagecoach. They go in, they open the doors, they all look dead. Carpenter may be faking his death. And so they grab the gold, and they ride off. Let's see... Uh, the outlaws hid in a, a narrow place in the Portnoif, Portnoif Canyon. Portnoif? I don't know. It's P-O-R-T-N-E-U-F, Portnoif Canyon. Now, this part of Portnoif Canyon was aptly named Robber's Roost, 
and they waited there. You know, kind of waited for the, you know, the heat to die down. So the guys that ran off into the woods, they make it back into town. And yep, you know, you guessed it. They told everybody, so the law was now after the, I already forgot their names, the Apple Dumpling Gang. I already forgot what they were called. I don't want to scroll back up. So that gang, whatever they're called, I'm just going to call them the something Coral Gang, whatever they were, um, they buried the gold, planning to wait for the heat to die down because also it was insanely heavy. It was so much gold, and it was marked. They were, like, stamped. So they're like, all right, we got to bury this for a little bit. Um, But... It didn't really last because the law caught up with one robber in Arizona while he was on a drinking binge. He was shot while resisting arrest. Then, within the year, vigilantes, they found and hanged the others in Colorado, a third in a cabin in Boise where he was hanged. Now, when he was hanged, everybody, like the mob was like, where the hell's the gold? And he just went, go to hell. So they hanged him. So, they know none of them had the gold on them. None of them had spent any large amounts of money since the robbery, and nothing was ever found. And the insurance company, you know, paid off everybody for finding these these criminals, but not the gold. Which leads to this question. So where's the gold? Well, that depends on who you ask or where you get your info. Because I went down a rabbit hole about this thing. There is some that call it the Portnoy Canyon robbery. There's some that call it the Robber's Roost robbery. There's some that get the dates completely wrong, but... I went with the ones that actually had the correct information that that went to the uh, or had, you know, links to the newspaper articles that seemed to have the people's names and information on it that was correct based on those people. The quote, quote unquote, experts, I well, I'll just call them. They say it's probably in the Portnoy Wildlife Management Area. And if I'm saying Portnoy wrong, OK, you don't have to tell me it's fine. I doubt I'm ever going to make it there. And, and, you know, maybe I do want to because I'd like to go and find this gold. But they said it's probably in that wildlife management area. So I looked. I'm like, all right, how big is that area? Well, it's 3,104-acre Idaho wildlife management area in Bannock County near the town of McCammon. McCammon, yeah, there you go. So that's a big area to search. But most think 10 to 15 miles would be the limit from that robbery site with the amount of gold and the time that they had. So here's my thing. Here's what I would say. If you're really into this treasure and you're really into finding this treasure, you know they know where the robbery happened. They know the robbery site. It was in the newspapers. The, the people that got away said exactly where they were hit. Make a circle. You know, put a, put a pin mark on that part of the map and then make a circle of 15 miles around it. And there's your search site. It's still a lot of ground to search, I give you that, but you should be able to go. Based on the the topography that they were talking about, you know, they had to go up the hill and down the trail, and there's a stream and blah, blah, blah. It sounds like it was very rugged, but there was a, a route that you could take. So if you get rid of all of the topography that was just, you know, not really accessible by men on the run with horses with 800 pounds of gold, I'm going to say that 15-mile marker is way less than that. Now, other people think the gold is actually waiting to be found farther south at the City of Rocks National Reserve. All right, so how big is that? Well, that's 14,407 acres of land. Others say the bandits said were said to have buried the loot about three-quarters mile, three-quarter mile north of McCammon at a spot now called Robber's Roost, which is in that Portnoy 
wildlife management area. And I will say, I thought it was kind of neat that Robber's Roost is most famous as the hideout of Butch Cassidy and his wild bunch. Now, another one says, it is fairly easy to plot a route from the robbery up to the Little Lost Valley. Somewhere along that route is where the gold was hidden. Probably pretty close to the robbery site, as the robbers wouldn't want to haul himself and how many other, you know, how many unknown hundreds of pounds of gold very far. So, even better. This guy says there is no possible way. Go check the easiest route from the robbery up to the Little Lost Valley. Now, if you're already in Idaho, I will say, I'm going to quickly run down a bunch more of treasures that are waiting to be found. I'm not going to go into detail about them, but since I was talking about Idaho and everything, why not? And like I said, this one, this one alone, it's amazing to me that it's just never been found. Now, there's people that say it's so rugged and the area's been so picked over that it probably was found and we just never knew about it, but I don't think that's the case. I really don't. Let's see... There is the Boise County. Close to 3 million troy ounces of gold have been removed from the gravels at the Bose Basement and Basin, Bose Basin. And according to treasure hunters, there's plenty more to be found. Hotspots would include many watercourses through the area and gravel arroyos northeast of Boise near Idaho City. So if you just want to pan for gold, that's where they say you should go. Boise County, near the Nevada state line at Rye Flats, a shipment of newly minted gold coins still in the original wrappers is said to have been hidden in a metal box inside an above-ground cave. The coins are worth $40,000 at the time they were stolen. Allegedly, the bandits never returned for the stolen loot, probably killed. That's a cool one. That's one worth checking out. Bonner County in Idaho. In 1888, after successfully prospecting in the area of Priest Lake, a prospector named Zach Stoneman was headed to cash in his gold when his mules died after eating poisoned weeds. I don't like that. Uh, burying three burrows loads worth of gold in the area north of the Priest River and three to four miles below the Priest Lake. He continued his journey, but when he returned, he couldn't find the right location. And he says it's still out there to be, or he said it was still out there to be found. That seems like a lot of stuff. <clears throat> Up next, Cassia County, or Cassia County. In the 1890s, a range war erupted between cattlemen and sheepherders in the vast lands of this county. Let's see, there was a guy hired a bunch of gunslingers. Um, he made his money in, in gold mining, but it said that both the they they both uh the cattlemen and the sheep herders both hid their valuables in the area around Deep Creek and Shoshone Creek. Two places, lots of gold. They know that it was there at one point. Custer County. Near the mouth of the Yankee Fork River, a man named Isaac T. Swim discovered gold-bearing quartz in the summer of 1881. He made his way to Chalice, or Chalice, the Custer County seat, to file a claim. He returned to his claim to take samples in the fall, but didn't stay long as winter was quickly approaching. Then he, he returned with some other miners. Uh, when they came through they, the, uh, to the Salmon River, they found it extremely high from the spring runoff, and they couldn't find the area. Um, let's see, swam, other miners began to search for him, found a drowned horse a short distance away downstream, they never found his body, since he was the only one who knew where the gold was, the gold was never found. Interesting. They think it's across the river from the mouth of the Yankee Fork. So there you go, Idaho, go look for that one. Idaho County, five miles south of Whitebird, along the Salmon River, Salmon River, 
It's a place called Robber's Gulch. More than a century ago, uh, outlaws held up a freight wagon with $75,000 in miner's gold and hid it there among the rocks um, towards the rough Seven Devils area. To date, the gold's never been found. Kootenai County, November 1889, a prospector named Jack Breen found gold near Coeur d'Alene. Um, he didn't have the funds to work the claim. Uh, let's see, two people went with him. He, they got him drunk, hoping he would tell him exactly where it was. He wouldn't give him the information. Uh, the marshal put him in, in jail for his own protection after finding out that these guys were trying to do this. The next morning, the jail caught on fire, and he died from smoke inhalation. So his prospect, or his claim, has never been found either. There's the Lewis and Clark Trail. Um, there's a bunch of them from, like, a whole bunch of gold through there. Shoshone County, around at 1900, uh, around the year 1900, a bank was robbed in the Wallace-Kellogg area, and the bandits made off with some $80,000. Hiding from the authorities overnight, they were said to have buried the cash somewhere in the four-mile stretch between Hutner in Post Falls, they could never find the, the stolen loot, and the bandits were hanged. It's never been recovered. Shoshone County, Butch Cassidy, his gold's never been found. Twin County, 1888, an outlaw acting alone robbed the Jarbridge, Idaho stage near the site of present-day Salmon Dam. The bandit was quickly overtaken and killed by a posse, but the gold was not found. Many believe that the outlaw buried the strong box somewhere on the east side of Brown's Bench, a large flat mesa about 15 miles west of Rogerson, Idaho. There you go, Idahoans. What are you doing? Listen to, I mean, hopefully you're listening to this while you're out searching for gold. But, you know, if I lived in Idaho, I think I'd be out every weekend looking for gold. I'd get, you know, a metal detector and just go for it. Seems like there's a shit ton of gold in Idaho, everybody. Why are we all just sitting around? Let's all go to Idaho and hold hands or, or, or go like arm to arm, arm's length to arm length, and we'll just walk across Idaho until we find everything. All right, that about does it for the Idaho part of this episode, but no, no, there's plenty more to be said because I have another treasure to talk about. On this next one, I thought it was like just a cool legend and a plot to like a ton of movies at first, and I was like, that's all it is, just some kind of urban legend kind of bullshit. But the more I looked into it, the more I found dates, names, facts that suggest that this next one could be real. Hell, there's even some science that backs up the most bizarre part of this treasure. Well, enough of this tease. What am I rambling on about poetically? Well, it's called the Lost Ship in the Desert. And when you hear that name, if you're like me, I'm sure you pictured like some cool old pirate ship stuck atop a dune in the Sahara Desert. Like, you know, like it's got to be like the most national treasure looking kind of treasure ship. But no, it's not in the Sahara Desert or the Gobi Desert or the Dune Sea. No, this one is right here in California and at a place that I've been to numerous times. I'll get to it. Don't worry. For this one, let's go back to the first supposed mentions of a ship being seen in the Salton Sea here in California. If you've been to the Salton Sea like I have, you're going to go, wait, there's a ship buried out there because I went there. And there's nothing but like burnt out meth head houses and or or trailer park kind of houses that are all burnt out from meth heads. And like, you know, they're all graffitied and there's like a bunch of fish bones all over the ground because the way that they, they did the land was really bad and it sucked up all the sea. And it was, look, in the 50s, the Salton Sea was like a really cool 
like Hollywood hangout. They'd all go out there and it was very cool and very, you know, but then something happened. I think it was like mining or something and it basically killed the sea or the lake that, you know, Salton Sea is there by. I mean, I'm assuming it's sea. It's called Salton Sea. Um, they basically killed it. So it's just fish bones for as far as you can see. It's the weirdest looking place to go and visit. Very, very neat looking. And there's a bunch of hot springs nearby, which means that there's an underground volcano. But besides that super volcano part and the weird fish bones part, apparently, if you go way, way back, there are mentions by both the Native Americans going back 200 years, Spanish explorers going back however long it was before American settlers got in and it was just Spanish explorers. Then there are also mentions by American settlers, gold miners, treasure hunters going back hundreds of years of a ship in the Salton Sea. Uh, like that was just like abandoned and not like still floating around, but I mean a ship that like is in the desert part or, in, you know, in the sands of the Salton Sea. If it was just one of those groups that I just mentioned, if it was just the Native Americans, I'd be like, oh, that's cool, and I'd be really into it. But then the Spanish explorers saw it, American settlers saw it, gold miners saw it. Throughout the years, it's been spotted a number of times. It's a lost ship in a desert that was far from water that winds would occasionally uncover parts of before, like, the sands reclaim them, which is why it's not just, oh, there's that ship. You make a left at that ship. Sometimes it's there. Sometimes it's not. It's bizarre. So let's keep going. Let's go, let's go to the tale. All right, so the tale is that a Spanish vessel sailed up into the Salton Sea, possibly riding what is called a tidal bore. I'm sure you know what that is, but I didn't, so here you go if you don't. A tidal bore is a surge of water that moves against a river's normal flow, which science says has happened in that region as recently as 1922 and would have continued to happen if people in California hadn't drained the river completely. So, immediately, science is backing up. This part of the tale is completely plausible. It's happened numerous times as recently as 1922. So the story says that when a ship went to return the way they came, they went up that little tidal bore and they're like, ooh, you know, like a new place to explore. This is cool. They went up that tidal bore and when they were like, all right, we should probably go back. The waters had actually receded back over the natural dam, leaving the vessel stranded in the Salton Sea. So now this ship is now floating in the Salton Sea, stranded there, filled with treasure. And then the sea went away, as it does. It, you know, it's... Again, it's a weird thing to say like a sea went away, but if you look at the area, there is a large portion of the area that sometimes there's a lot of water and most of the times it's just desert. And that's what happened. So the ship was stuck there and it remained there forever. Cool, right? But still, let's get to some possible proof. Science says it could happen. We know that the story has been talked about for hundreds of years, but is there any possible proof? Well... For that, we first go to Antonio de Ferrero Blanco in his historical book, The Journey of the Flame. He told this weird early tale. He says, the story was told to him by Juan Colorado on his 104th birthday of being in the camp of Don Fermin Sanjudo, where all of our men had spent their lives as guards or packers for Spanish explorers. One of the men, Tiburcio Mancarno, had taken Colorado aside and told the tale of Iturbe, or Iturbe, I don't know. 
Iturbe, the great Spanish coastal pilot who had sailed along the Gulf of California coast in 1615, exploring for the king and fishing for pearls. Now, supposedly, this has been verified. He said, homeward bound after filling his 50-ton ship with sufficiently large fortune, fortune, Iturbe, or Iturbe, I think it's Iturbe, though, saw a vast sea extending far inland, possibly by the Salton Sea, and was certain that he'd found the fabled Straits of Aninian, connecting the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. More than three months, he searched for a continuation of the Straits, seeing from the highest mountain atop a vast body of water winding towards the northeast. They're thinking that's possibly the Colorado River he was talking about. But he couldn't find an entrance. So he sailed south, but could not find his way back to the Vermilion Sea when the water mysteriously receded, stranding them on a sandbar, that tidal bore thing that science says is real and happens in the Salton Sea. So they left their ship and its vast treasure, including pearls and all that other crap. Um, uh, let's see, upright as though sailing, but with its keel buried in the sand. He continued his tale of working as a mule driver for Juan Batiste de Anza in the search for land route from Sonora to Alto California in the 1770s. He said, I was sent to the right of the course, seeking a road to the ocean. Traveling by night because of the heat, I stumbled upon an ancient ship and in its hold, so many pearls as is beyond imagination. Fevered by his wealth, I took what I could carry, abandoned my comrades, and riding towards the ocean as far as my mule could carry me. I climbed the precipitous western mountains on foot. Fed by Indians, I last reached San Luis Rey Mission. Since then, I have spent my life searching for this ship. I have known as a boy natives from every tribe on the peninsula, and they taught me much of great value, but never did one lie to me. Some of their stories I did not believe then, but each have tested, proved to be true in all parts, including this ship. So, we have a historical book talking about, it's the third party by this point, but still, talking about someone who's said that he saw it. He, tell, he gives exactly, you know, like, not exact locations, but he gives rough locations, where he was, what he saw, and it all is backed by science. Then... The Los Angeles Star reported the ship as found in December of 1870 as the result of an expedition by Charlie Klusker. Now, Charlie Klusker was a man that did exist. I checked into it. And it seems to me it's true that he actually went out and he says he found the ship. But Klusky also disappeared when he set out on a return journey to get the gold. Now, the initial report, uh, let's see, the ship exists, yep. He said he came back, he, he came back into town, he was like, look, we ran out of, um, Harry, I'll, I'll just read what it said in the, from the article. Charlie Klusker and a party started out again this morning to find that mythical ship upon the desert, this side of Dos Palmas, located on the northeast side of the Salton Sea Basin. Charlie made his trip three or four weeks ago, but made the wrong shoot and mired his wagon 15 miles from Dos Palmas. He is satisfied from information that he's received from the Indians that the ship is no myth. He is prepared with a good wagon, pack saddles, and planks to cross the sandy ground. Then, the same that same a newspaper, the Los Angeles Star, printed another story on December 1st that, quote, Charlie Klusky and a party returned from the desert yesterday just as we were going to press. They had a hard time of it, but they have, they have succeeded in their efforts. The ship has been found. Charlie returns to the desert today to reap the fruitions of his labor. He was without food or water under a hot broiling sun for over 24 hours and came near perishing. He described the ship, Charlie, 
described the ship as an ornately carved Spanish galleon, complete with crosses and broken masts, loaded with pearls and other treasures, and it was sitting in the Colorado Desert, which is in the the, the southern eastern corner of uh, California, basically. Okay, so Charlie said he found it. They ran out of food and water. They had to come back for supplies. And then they went out and got it, right? Well, no. I clearly say this treasure is, uh, you know, like this episode's about treasures that are still out there, but why didn't he find it again? Well, if you go to the Daily Alta California, a newspaper that was published from 1849 to 1891, it says, Mr. Klusker stands highly in this community for veracity and sense. He certainly believes he has found the ship, and everyone here believes him. He starts tomorrow again, taking several barrels for water. When he went back to what he thought was the site of the ship, he says he couldn't find it in the sands as, quote, the sands had swallowed it up again and changed the topography. So he stayed out there searching and apparently died because he just never returned. He basically disappeared looking for, you know, for what him and that other guys, you know, said, you know, the ship is right there. The sands come and go. The ship comes and goes. But he spent his life looking for a ship and died. And it's not just it's not just him. Other people have spent their lives looking for it. Other people have seen it. So who else has seen it? I guess that's the next part. Let's get into that. More eyewitnesses. The first one, it's slightly different. This person says they don't think it was a Spanish galleon at all, but a Viking ship. In 1870, Explorer and Colonel Albert S. Evans was traveling to San Bernardino, California, when he claimed to have stumbled on by accident remains of a ship in the desert. He said the moon threw a track of shimmering light upon the wreck of a gallant gallant ship. He wrote in the Galaxy magazine in 1870, which might have gone down there centuries ago when bold Spanish adventurers were pushing their way to the northwest. So, he still says... I don't know what ship it was. It was probably from the Spanish, but it kind of he thought it kind of looked more like a Viking ship. And he's not the only one. In 1907, a farmhand named Elmer Carver noticed odd-shaped fence posts while working on Niles Jacobson's farm in Imperial, California. When he asked about them, Mrs. Jacobson said that um, a windstorm had revealed the remains of a ship with the Jacobsons had you know used to repurpose into a fence. Mr. Jacobson said he also found some small gems, which he sold in Los Angeles, but they weren't rich people. So either they were kind of dumb and found a treasure ship and only took a couple of things and then a bunch of wood to make a a fence out of, or enough of it wasn't like exposed. So they thought they found everything, but the rest of the ship was still there under the sands. Then around 1933, Myrtle Botts, who's a librarian from Julian, California, says that she had an encounter with an old prospector. Grain of salt, this one, because I can't verify any of it. So the old prospector reported seeing a ship lodged in the rocks of Canebrake Canyon. He described the vessel as a Viking ship clearly made of wood with serpentine figures carved in its prow. He gave her and her husband directions to the ship, um, and she said, we walked over there and we saw it, but they were ill-equipped, and they decided they would come back with supplies to get a closer look. But then an earthquake happened, and they couldn't find the ship again. I know. Now, some sites say that Julian's 
Pioneer Museum inherited Myrtle Bot's papers, including directions and descriptions of the ship. But thankfully, I didn't have to do this. Another person that was investigating this actually reached out to that museum, the Julian's Pioneer Museum, and said, hey, I want to see Myrtle Bot's papers with the directions and the descriptions of the ship. And they said, they don't have anything even remotely like records of descriptions of a ship in their possession. So again, big grain of salt on this 1933 Myrtle Bots one. And the only one that clearly said it was a Viking ship. Then, Desert Magazine covered the mystery of the desert ship for the first time in 1939. Writer Charles C. Nyhus, I don't know how to say his name. He's, I apologize, Charles. Uh, he described a strange encounter he had with Jim Tucker in Prescott, Arizona. Uh, let me read just a little bit from it. Tucker's wife was a Mexican woman named Petra, who previous, whose previous husband was a man named Santiago, a high-class Mexican from Los Angeles. One day, Santiago saw Petra making tortillas on a type of round griddle called a comal. I know I'm getting this all wrong. He described, he was like, you know what? I know where we can get a better one. And he said, I'll tell you something strange. You're going to say I'm crazy that I lose my water and get thirsty and see dreams, but it's the truth. But he told Petra that he'd been exploring the mountains north of the border in a narrow box canyon when he saw a boat of ancient appearance, an open boat but big, with round metal discs on its side. He said he was pulled away by his companions before he could explore the ship and never went back. But he thought those big round metal discs would be a great thing to put, you know, to make the tortillas on. I, all right. He goes on to say, um, he promised his wife that he would go and get her one of these round discs to make a superior comals, suggesting that a Viking ship could have sailed its way through the Northwest Passage down the coast of Canada, around Baja, California, up the Colorado River, which before a modern-day diversion flowed into the Gulf of California, sailing up the Colorado River back would have brought his ship into Lake Kohula, which is an enormous body of water and once occupied much of what is today's Coachella Valley. The explorers might have thought that the lake was um, a strait, since uh, California was believed to be an island in the 18th century, but the ship could have easily run aground, and that caused this ship to dry up and, you know, basically become the desert ship, the lost ship in the desert. I don't know about that one either. There's, it's, again, it's a third-party um, storytelling, so I don't know truthfully if that one's on there, but grain assaulted, that has some definite um, locations, though. So if you're looking for the ship, I would say, you know, listen to everything that everybody says. Then another attempt to find the ship happened in 1949. An expedition led by three UCLA students and an ongoing effort by John Grasson, who's a former editor of Desert Magazine, that's Desert with a Z. Um, they said that they went on the ship. They are not they went on the ship. They went on an expedition to find the ship. But I don't think they found anything. Again, the UCLA students believe the ship was Viking and not Spanish, but there's no information on did they find it, what did they find, when did they go, specific dates, who went with them. I don't know. Again, it's part of the legend. From there, though, we jump ahead to the early 1970s. A man named Lawrence Justice, not like, you know, like it's J-U-S-T-U-S, -U -S, not like he's, you know, I'm Lawrence Justice which would be like a great name for like a, you know, an attorney. Um, he sought permission to enter the Anza Borrego Desert State Park in Borrego Springs, California for quote, 
the purpose of locating certain artifacts. Now, this was uh, also written about at the time by the Desert Sun. His attorney first contacted the California Department of Parks and Recreation in 1974, and then two years later, again, with a proposal to enter agreements where Justice and the Imperial Imperial Valley College Museum in El Centro, California, would be able to secure an antiquities permit, after which he'd be able to keep all the gold, silver, and rare stones. And according to the article, the state said, no, no, that's a terrible deal. No, straight out, no. But there's an article about this guy, Larry or Lawrence Justice, uh, and his search includes the story of a guy named George going to a remote location with a friend of Larry Justice with photos of what could be part of a ship. I couldn't find those photos. I mean, there's, if you look up like the, you know, anything about this ship in the in the Salton Sea or lost ship in the desert, there's photos, but I can't verify if any of them are even remotely real. But it also mentions mentions that that ship is a Viking ship. And it goes on to say that a group of wildflower enthusiasts had actually seen it. So again, 70s. And a Mexican who had taken one of the shields from it. But here's more of Grain of Salt. The article was written for Lost Treasures magazine, which sounds awesome, but also sounds like it was something that would embellish a bit. And if they're writing it for Lost Treasures magazine and they know the quote-unquote Mexican who'd taken one of the shields, okay, where's the shield? There's your proof. Where is that? The answer is nowhere. It just doesn't go anywhere if you go down that rabbit hole. Then... There was a guy named John Grasson, or Grayson, but I think it's Grasson, who is the expert of the lost ship. And it bums me out to say this, but sadly, he died in a traffic accident on December 21st, or December of 2021. He would have been the guy that I would have 100% wanted to interview for this article. This guy devoted his life to this ship. Sadly, he passed away, and the only associate of his that I could find, I won't name his name, is sadly one of the worst kinds of um, conspiracy theory, deep state kind of guys, so I won't interview him for this episode. Um, you know, with that, it, it bums me out, because here's another man, John Grasson, who, you know, basically devoted his life to try and find the ship and died, sadly, not finding it. But with that... That brings us up to modern day. People are still searching for the ship. The ship may still be out there. With all these experts and people's going back and forth of it, though, why isn't why hasn't it been found? We've had hundreds of years. Well, there actually might be a slightly good answer to that. The greater part of the Salton Sea, Salton Sink, has been submerged under the Salton Sea since 1905. Let me read that again. The greater part of the Salton Sink has been submerged under the Salton Sea since 1905. It actually went back under the water, where a lot of these people, not in the 70s, but, you know, the prior, like the 30s and the 20s and whatnot, what would have been desert for them is now back under the Salton Sea. And much of the adjacent land of the Salton Sea is under military control. It's been used for bombing ranges. Basically, it's rendering the searches insanely hazardous and illegal. So there's a good reason why, if there is a ship out there filled with treasure, why we haven't found it. Now, here's a kind of good news, bad news thing, though. They have since diverted all the water from that goes into the Salton Sea. 
after these rains, I'm sure it's filled up again, but after a little while, maybe a year, it's going to be desert again. If you can avoid like the bombing ranges, I wouldn't use metal detectors looking near anywhere near where they might have bombed, you know, did the bombing ranges because you're going to find a bomb that has an, you know, unexploded ordnance and that would be bad. But if the ground turns into desert again and the winds are, you know, blowing through, which they do, they start whipping through there crazy. There is a chance that if there was a ship out there, it'll be found again. It's just a matter of time whether that's by someone who's out there looking for it or it's just because of the way that, you know, you know, everything that gets buried gets unearthed again one way or another. So, you know, it's like that coffin underneath the, you know, Notre Dame. One way or another, this shit's all going to come back out in the wash. And, you know, it might be coming back out in the wash sooner than we think. All right, that about does it. If you live in California, the Salton Sea seems to be the place. Go look for a, a, a ship in the desert. That's a cool one to find. Um, if you live in Idaho, take your pick, man. But I would say I would, I would go with the, with the stagecoach one I read to you because that one seems to have a lot of people that say it's gotta be here. It's gotta be there. It's gotta be here. And like I said, you do a 10 to 15 mile range from the, you know, put a pinpoint where the, where the robbery happened and then a 10 to 15 mile range around it. It's a lot of land, but it's not as much land as all of California's Coachella Valley, you know? I don't know. It's it's interesting. There seems to be a lot of treasures out there just waiting to be found and hopefully found by one of you guys. Or, you know, one of you just wins the Mega Millions and becomes a billionaire and decides to, I don't know, support Paranormal Almanac from, you know, till the ends of time because that sounds like fun to me. But anyhow, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Again, another bizarre Cool. I can't believe that there's there's that many treasures out there still waiting to be found in 2023. We should have found them all by now, but we haven't. And there's more. I can even do, I won't do it, you know, in the next few weeks or anything, but I can do a whole other episode about treasures. There's still more out there to be told. It's crazy amount of treasures that are just waiting to be found, hopefully by either you or me. Um, all right, so what do you guys think of these treasure episodes? I know it's not paranormal. Like I said, I've already gotten a lot of people to say, I really like these. I think they're really cool. And when I did the Fens Treasure one, you know, the, the original Fens Treasure one, there was a bunch of Fens Treasure hunters that reached out to me saying, where'd you get this information? And that's not true. And this isn't true. And guess what? It all turned out to be true. Everything I said turned out to be true. So maybe, just maybe, you can use Paranormal Almanac to find a treasure. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Samig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Uh, there's Jimmy.